This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. Building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. You've got the same spirit of faith. You have the same faith that Jesus used to raise the dead. You have the same faith that Jesus used to, to do miracles. To cause the blind to see and the lame to walk. You have the same spirit of faith. It's exactly the same faith. Why? Because faith is based on the word and the word never changes. The unchangeable part is God's word. You just have to decide what you, what you plug into. So Peter says, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. Why did Jesus not say, now, wait a minute, Peter, you don't understand. I'm walking on the water. The reason I'm walking on the water is because I'm the son of God. You don't know the physical change, the, the things that have changed in nature for me to be able to stand on the water. Peter didn't fall down at the edge of the boat and say, wow, now I know you're the son of God. Now, I would have understood that response. Really? I could have related to that one. That would have made perfect sense to me. Man, oh, man, we've seen you do good stuff. That feeding of the 5,000, that got us wondering, but now we know. Nobody could walk on the water but you. But instead, his response is, Jesus, hey, I want to do that too, man. That looks so cool. Let me do that too. And Jesus says, come. He doesn't say, no, you don't understand. This will mess up the story for the Gospels later on. (laughs) He just says, come. Sure, no hesitation. He doesn't have to pray about it. Sure, come. That one word, folks, please understand. This is why faith is the issue. This is why faith is the issue because the faith is always based on the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Hearing that one four-letter word was enough for Peter to walk on the water. And he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. I would, these ships are pretty big and and, uh, they've discovered one that was from Jesus' day. And so they've got kind of an idea how big they are and and that kind of thing. And and when I say kind of big, it was, it certainly had enough of these guys. So when it talks about coming down, it it indicates there were kind of two levels on it. And so he comes down from from the upper deck. There must have been a hold or something like that underneath. And so he comes down. I would be delighted to find out from Peter, what were you thinking while you were on your way down? You can't tell me that he didn't have a thought of doubt. Now, I could understand it if Peter jumped over the side too quick before he thought. I've done that some. Jump before I thought. But it doesn't. It doesn't say that. It says that when he was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Whatever thoughts he had on the way out weren't enough to stop him from walking on the water. He conquered those. Why? Because Jesus said, come. So he walked on the water to go to Jesus. There was enough power in the the one word Jesus spoke, come, for him to walk on the water. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. When he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. What does that tell us? That tells us Peter got out there on the water. The water is becoming solid under his feet or whatever, however it's working. 
He's taking one step. He's taking another step. He takes another step. And then he realizes the wind is blowing. Now, folks, why are they having trouble rowing in the middle of the sea to begin with? Because the wind is contrary. Did the wind just start blowing when Peter was out there? What was it that caused him to begin to sink? When he saw the wind boisterous, he beginning to sink, cried out and said, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Peter gets out in the middle of the water. Wasn't too far away from Jesus. Jesus was close enough to reach him. He gets out in the middle of the water, walking on top of the water. And he sees the wind. He sees the effect of the wind. He sees the waves. Maybe one slaps him in the side. Now, if, if he had taken the time, and I'm sure all this stuff happened instantaneously with him, just like it does with us. But if he had taken the time to think this through, he could have thought, now, wait a minute, what did Jesus tell me to come for? So I could sink or walk? If he told me to come, he cares about me. He's not going to let me out here in the middle of the thing and, and drop like a rock and sink to the bottom. He could have reasoned this thing out, but he didn't. He went from walking on the water to beginning to sink. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to put my own interpretation on this because in my estimation, there's only one thing that could have caused him to sink. And it wasn't the doubts. It wasn't the thoughts in his mind. Faith will work. Faith is of the heart. It's of the spirit. Faith will work from your heart even when there's doubt in your mind. So it's not the doubts, it's not the thoughts, wow, the wind's really blowing out here. That's not going to cause him to sink. There's only one thing that will cause him to sink, and that is if he stops acting on the one word Jesus said, which was come. He stopped walking and stood still. As long as he's acting on what Jesus said, he's good. He could have walked backwards to Jesus if he'd wanted to. So when it says he began to, when he saw the wind boisterous, he beginning, he beginning to doubt, started to sink. That has to mean one and only one thing, and that is he stopped walking. When he stopped acting on the word, that's when the thoughts took over. Now, why did he stop walking? Because of the fear that was associated with the thoughts of the wind. I want you to notice, folks, fear was not enough to stop him to begin with. The wind wasn't enough to stop him to begin with. But when he took notice of them and acted on them, acted according to them instead of according to the word that Jesus said, which was come, that's when he began to sink. Now, I think that's interesting as well, too. How do you begin to sink? Sinking is an either-or situation, isn't it? You're either on top or you're sinking. How do you begin to sink? I heard somebody describe it this way, and I thought it was real good. His faith left him by degrees. He begins to lower down into the water. His faith left him by degrees. Faith comes by degrees, and it leaves by degrees. How? By hearing. Romans ten seventeen. so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word. His faith left him by degrees. So he cried out, Jesus, save me. Jesus reached out and grabbed his hand and says, Oh, thou of little faith. Wherefore or why did you doubt? That's a great question. Why doubt? Yeah, but I saw the wind. That wasn't you. Wind was blowing before Jesus ever got there. We know that because Jesus saw them in his heart, had a vision of them toiling and rowing. Mark's account says they were struggling against the, the, the wind. 
before he ever walked out on the water. It's not the wind that stopped Peter. It's not the waves that stopped Peter. The only thing that stopped Peter was Peter. He chose to doubt. What circumstance is powerful enough? In Peter's situation, what circumstance was powerful enough to stop him from walking on the water? One of the, one of the great miracles, from a natural standpoint, one of the great miracles that you can imagine. What was powerful enough to stop him from walking on the water? Only his doubt. And it wasn't even the circumstance. It was the action that he took based on the circumstance. So why should we doubt? Was the word of Jesus, the one word, come not enough? If so, why didn't Peter call out to Jesus and saying, say it again, Jesus, say it again. Tell me to keep coming. What necessary? He already had the word. His choice was very simple. Do I act on what Jesus said or not? And folks, his choice is the same as yours and mine. In every situation, every day of our lives, do we do what the Word says or do we do something else? Yeah, but it doesn't look like what the Word says is going to work. Well, that may mean you have to walk on top of what it looks like in the world. Join Mike Webb and Foothill Family Church every Sunday night at 6 p.m. for our weekly healing school. Healing School is for those who are in need of being healed from sickness in their body, as well as those who want to strengthen their faith in the area of healing. Now, whatever somebody, you or me or somebody else might think of why Jesus healed the sick, Matthew 8, 17 tells us why he healed everybody that was sick. Jesus healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Foothill Family Church is in Orange County at the corner of Bake Parkway and Lake Forest Drive, just minutes off the 5 Freeway. To learn more about how you and your family can connect with Foothill Family Church, simply log on to MikeWeb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word. Matthew chapter 15. The middle part of the chapter tells us about the Syrophoenician woman being healed. And then verse 29 says, And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh into the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame. Now, this is the, the, the most complete, in the, to my knowledge, this is the most complete description of a crowd of sick people that we have in the Scripture. They brought unto him those that were lame, crippled, blind, dumb, maimed, missing body parts, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Now, I want you to notice something about this. It makes no distinction between healings and miracles. How do you heal a maimed person? How do you heal somebody that's missing a hand? Well, you put the hand back. How does that happen? Does the hand grow? Well, there's nothing there for it to grow from. Then it's got to be a miracle to replace it, to replace the missing part. And, folks, a lot of things that we look like look at as normal healings are miracles. In, in one sense, every healing is a miracle because even if the human body is as it's designed to heal itself or to amend, the fact that somebody is sick means that there's something that's hindering or is a barrier or an obstacle to that healing process. God built into the human body a healing process. 
And medical science, the only thing they can do is try to remove those barriers so the body can heal itself. Now, in many cases, those barriers is a tumor or something like that, and they try to cut it out of the body. But there are a lot of things about healing that if we could see what was going on, there may be things that are missing or things that have to be replaced. By replaced, I don't mean something that's not there and then put there. I mean something that's defective and has to be, has to be repaired. But even that would be a miracle. Every instant healing has to be miraculous. So you've got miracle healings that are taking place here. And it's casual. I mean, it just mentions it casually. It's like Matthew takes the attitude or the position that, well, I, you know, I can't make this book go on forever. So, yeah, there was a bunch of folks, great multitudes. I don't know how great multitude, how big that is, but it sounds to me like a lot of people. Great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame and blind and dumb and maimed and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Ho-hum. In so much, I love this phrase, in so much that the multitudes wondered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now, where's the idea that the modern-day church has about glorifying God in sickness? Why aren't they glorifying God while these people are still sick? Notice they begin to glorify God after they get well. You do a study in the four Gospels, you'll find out people glorified God after they got well, not while they were sick. Why does the church try to reverse that? Then Jesus called his disciples unto him, verse 32, and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. And his disciples said unto him, oh, wait, we've been here before. We know how this works. We've got seven loaves and a few fishes. Now the disciples said, where should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill this great a multitude? Why don't they turn back a page and read in chapter 14? (laughs) And folks, this is Matthew. The reason I'm going to Matthew, we could have gone to any of the other gospels and seen this account. I want you to see this is right after it happened before. Now, my thinking, I'm not throwing rocks at them because I might have been one of the ones to say, you know, there's no place around here to buy food. I'd like to think that I wouldn't, but... Who knows? But I have to think that Jesus, somewhere along the way, is shaking his head thinking, when are these guys going to learn? I fed the 5,000. I healed the multitudes. I walked on the water. What are they thinking? Well, you can see what they're thinking. They're thinking naturally. They're thinking laws of nature. They're thinking big crowds, a little bit of food. That's a problem. But Jesus has already expressed what he wants to happen. At the very least, they could have been quiet and watched. But they said, well, where are we going to buy so much food for this crowd? And Jesus said unto them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few little fishes. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fishes and gave thanks and break them and gave to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. Same thing, just says the blessing.
And they did all eat and were filled and took up the broken meat that was left, seven baskets full. And they that did eat were 4,000 men beside women and children. It could have been ten or 12,000 people. Now, this is the same multitude that he just healed. You would think that would have been enough. If he's trying to prove something to him, why feed him? He just, he just proved that he's the healing son of God. He just made the maimed to behold, the lame to walk, and the blind to see, the dumb to speak, the deaf to hear. Everybody in the crowd is just gaga, filled with wonder. Wow, we have never seen anything like this. And Jesus said, let's eat before we go. So what if there's 10 or 12,000 of you? How much food we got? Seven loaves and two fishes. Well, that's enough for me. You guys are on your own. He just says the blessing. He just says the blessing. Let me look at one last one this morning. I know we're out of time, so I'll cover this quick. Turn with me over to John chapter 1. I'm sorry, John chapter 2. John chapter 2, beginning verse 1, it says, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now, there's two other places, and both of them are in John's gospel, that Jesus talks about his hour not coming. And both of those have to do with the cross. One is in John chapter 7, verse 30, and the other is in John chapter 12, verses 25 and 27, something like that. Two other times where Jesus talks about mine hour is not yet come. When he says this to his mother, and it seems like a very, very, uh, well, it seems like he's upset with her for no reason. So there's got to be something else going on that doesn't come across in the, in the translation. When Jesus is told by his mother, they don't have any wine. She must be coming to him with some expectation that he's going to do something in order for him to respond the way that he did. Right? Otherwise, what's the point in him saying that? Now, when he says, my hour has not yet come, he does not mean my public ministry has not started. Because in chapter 1, he's been baptized by John in the Jordan River, and the Holy Ghost has come upon him in bodily shape as a dove. We know immediately following that from Luke's gospel that Jesus left to go into the wilderness. He was tempted of the devil out there. He spent 40 days fasting and then was tempted of the devil and he endured the temptation. Then he comes back in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. Now, this is what John says is his first miracle. So between Luke's account, this had to take place. So he's been baptized by John John the Baptist in the Jordan River. He's filled with the Holy Ghost. He comes back in the power of the Spirit. He's endured the temptation and the time in the wilderness and so forth. Now he comes back. First thing that he and his disciples do is they go to this wedding. And his mother comes to him and says, they don't have any wine. Now she has to have some kind of responsibility in this thing or else she wouldn't have come to him. Now there's all kinds of church tradition and stuff like that about this was a cousin of uh, Mary's and that's why she had some kind of place of responsibility here. And I don't know. Maybe. Who knows? I don't really care. But Jesus responds and says, Woman, what do I have to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. It seems to indicate that he's saying, You don't decide how the power of God works in me. I, I can't come up with any other explanation of what's he, what he's saying. Woman, what do I have to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. Well, every other time you talked about your hour coming, you're talking about the cross. Of course you're not going to the cross. You're just entering your public ministry. But he has entered his public ministry. 
He is empowered by the Holy Ghost to enter his public ministry. Hadn't done any miracles yet. This is his first one. But he's empowered by the Holy Ghost to do them. And his mother said unto the servants, please notice verse 5. His mother said unto the servants, whatsoever he says unto you, do it. Now, if Jesus has never done a miracle before in his life, what's she saying that for? And he hasn't. I'm not, I'm not arguing the point. He's never done a miracle. So what's she saying that for? This is the first miracle. The Bible says, John specifically says, after he turns the water into wine, this is his first miracle. So what's she telling the servants? Whatever he says to do, you do it. Folks, you need to understand something. Because Jesus has lived on the earth as a righteous man from his birth. He's had the blessing of God on him. He's been operating according to the word, the, the ordinance of God, the unchanging law of God. I will deal with you as you've spoken in my ears. Jesus has lived a supernatural life in front of his mother. She knows what he says happens. Now, not in a public context because he's never done anything for the benefit of other people. He's never ministered the power of God to other people because he's never been uh, anointed of the Holy Ghost. That happened when John the Baptist baptized him in the Jordan River. But he's lived a life filled with power, the power of a righteous man according to the Old Covenant. So she says to the servants, look, whatever he says to you, you do it. What he says works. So don't argue with him. You do what he says do. This is one of the greatest um, examples to me of the difference between the, the power of God in your own life and using the power of God to help other people. If Jesus has not experienced the power of God to, to uh, well, let me say it this way. If Jesus has not experienced the blessings of Abraham's covenant throughout his life, then God owes him an apology because he's lived righteous. He's kept the law. Do you see where I'm going with this? So his mother says, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. So then Jesus gives instructions. He said there were set six water pots of stone. By the way, these six water pots of stone, this was the water that they washed their feet in. That don't mean they dip their feet in this so it's dirty water, but this is the, the pots that they pull water out to wash the people's feet when they show up to the wedding. So the six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Uh, margin of my Bible says a firkin is about nine gallons, so this is about 18-gallon water pots, 18 to 25-gallon pots, I guess. And Jesus said unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, Draw out now and bear to the governor of the feast. Who wants to do that job? Now, the Bible does not say when the water turned to wine. It does not tell us that they carried wine to the governor of the feast. It doesn't say, doesn't say that at all. It says they drew out, they filled them with water. Jesus said, draw out now and bear into the governor of the feast, and they bear it. They're taking what may be, every step along the way, water from the foot washing pots. For the governor of the feast to drink. Now here's another thing when it comes to the multiplying of the loaves and the fishes. When Jesus blessed the, the loaves and the fishes. And then broke them in pieces and gave them to the disciples. When did they multiply? Did they multiply while the disciples had them in the basket? Did they multiply as people started pulling them out? Did they ever get more than just one or two in the bottom? I don't know which way it is. 
I don't know which way it worked with the water and the wine. We like to think that God's going to do everything so it looks right and then we can take action. But in my experience, a lot of times, it doesn't look like anything yet when you're given instruction to do something. So they took it to the governor of the peace. And he said unto them, uh, well, verse 9, when the the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, he didn't know where it came from. But the servants knew which drew the water. They know. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then then that which is worse. Keep the bad stuff till later when everybody can't tell anymore. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. Verse 11. This beginning of miracles. Means it's the first one. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. And manifested forth his glory. And his disciples believed on him. One last thought I want to give you to you folks. And that is. The Bible says. And we've looked at this over and over again. That one of the promises of the end times. Is that the glory of the Lord. Shall fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. If Jesus manifested the glory of God in his day through miracles, what is going to manifest the glory of God in our day? Are we left? Jesus had miracles to manifest the glory of God, but are are we left with just preaching? Are we left with just trying to persuade people? I mean, no matter how good you think somebody is, how good a preacher you think somebody is, I would dare stack them up against Jesus. So Jesus had the best preaching of the day. Jesus did the best teaching that could ever be done. And he still did miracles to manifest the glory of God. Why should it be any different for us? Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 14. He said, whatsoever you should call for or require in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So who's holding back? Us or God? The more I study this stuff, the more I see that the ball's in our court. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, we don't want to make mistakes. Well, I don't either. We don't want to step out there and try to do something that, that, that God doesn't back us up with. I don't want that either. But let me tell you where that thinking comes from. And I, I, I hope nobody takes this out of the context and runs off with it in the wrong way. There's a real fine line between somebody trying to do something and make something happen on their own that God hadn't directed them to. And somebody stepping out because the word gives them confidence to take action upon. But let me ask you a question. Is the lack of feeling faith the absence of faith? Here's another statement that Wigglesworth used to make. He said, when I feel like my faith is the strongest, that's when I'm the weakest because I'm going by my feelings. But when I feel the weakest in faith, that's when I'm the strongest because then all I've got is his word. Thank God for his word. God's word is the answer for every problem we'll face in this life. What a privilege it is to believe God and to walk by faith. Come visit us at Foothill Family Church. This is Foothill Family Church with Mike Webb. But they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, their teaching. 
What are the apostles teaching? Well, one thing that we do know that they know is they know that the God's plan for the world is to be saved, to be filled with the Holy, Holy Ghost, and God's plan for the church is to do the same works that Jesus did and even greater works. Join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. or Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Visit us online at mikeweb.tv. Foothill Family Church, building strong, spirit-filled lives through God's Word.